Last week we decided to go on a journey and we picked teams. How many of you were here last week? All right. And uh, we picked teams to go on a journey, and the journey was uh, a pathway of discipleship. We're kicking off a new series entitled Called and Committed. And uh, I have this question for you just up front. If you were to introduce yourself to someone, how would you describe your identity to them? Would you tell them um, how old you are up front? Probably not, right? Would you tell them, you know, your favorite uh, uh, food, your restaurant, those kinds of things. No, you wouldn't tell them up front those kinds of things. What would you tell them? Well, I'm so-and-so. I am from. Maybe you might say where you're from. Maybe you might say what you do. How would you describe yourself? What is your identity? That question was asked in a life group once, and um They went around the circle, and they started to describe who they were. My name is so-and-so. I am a a teacher. Next person, I'm so-and-so. I'm from here, and uh, this is, uh, you know, my first time to be in a group, and, uh, well, I'm I'm an engineer. And they kept going around the group, introducing themselves, what was their identity. And it came to this one person, last person. They said, well, please introduce yourself. They introduced themselves by their name, and then they said, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, uniquely disguised as a social worker. (laughs) What's your primary identity? My goal, and for us walking through this series in this month, is for you to shift your identity away from maybe whatever the world is looking for, for you to be identified as, and for you to understand that if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, your primary identity is that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're uniquely disguised as a social worker, an engineer, a teacher. You know, maybe it's it's uh, some type of salesperson. Maybe you're retired, and that's the identity you would have. You could say that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, uniquely dis- disguised as a retiree. What's your primary identity? Because this whole Christian faith gig is about one thing. It's about being a disciple of Jesus, not only in this life but in the life to come. You know, a lot of times it's, we're hesitant to sort of identify as a Christian. You know, it's like a Christian because everybody has these stereotypes of Christians. Maybe Christians are, you know, you're, you're sort of, uh, yeah, you're out there on the God thing, and that's fine for you. And you go to one of those churches that raise their hands with songs probably. That's, that's fine. You can be a Christian. Or maybe the idea of a Christian in your workplace is, oh, you're, you're sort of a narrow-minded, uh, a judgmental kind of person, right? So we're hesitant sometimes to even say that we're Christians. But, you know, we'll identify, well, I'm a Christian, and, um, you know, I, I, I have a, a, a relationship with God. You may, maybe we get to that level. You know, I was uh, getting my hair cut this week, and, and uh, the young guy cutting my hair, he was 19. Uh, Reginald was his name. Uh, it was interesting. We started chatting a little bit, and then he says, well, what do you do? And I, I'm always glad to tell them I'm a pastor. I stand in front of people, so you better make sure this haircut's pretty decent. And um uh, he goes, oh, really? That's interesting. And then just a few seconds later, he goes, just out of the blue, he goes, how did you end up 
deciding to be a pastor. Now, that's an open door. And you got a decision to make right there, right? He was 19 years old. He was cutting hair. He's just getting in this little, you know, tradesmanship down. And so I turned to him and I said, well, you know what happened when I was younger, when I was your age? Uh, Jesus Christ got a hold of my life. And I was a part of some ministry where we saw a lot of young people. Their lives were changing a lot. And um, that was where it began. I felt Jesus actually came and uh, started to encourage me in my heart that I needed to be not only a follower of his, but I, I needed I was being called to be someone who would encourage other people to be a follower of his. Now, you might say to yourself right now, well, that you're the pastor. You can say those kinds of things. But it takes me some guts to step out and say that. I'd like to go back and get my hair cut there. But what I did was I chose to shift it from, oh, the professional clergy, the pastor, to saying, you know, it's about Jesus. And I decided at a young age to be a follower of Jesus. What's your identity? If you're in the marketplace, if you're around the water fountain at your work or going out to have a bite to eat with somebody and and just hanging out and and some subject do you identify that you're a Christ follower maybe you say oh, I'm a Christian or those kind of, you might get but what if you made a further step and you just looked at him and said you know I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ who I believe is alive today and he leads me that's a bolder statement but is that your identity What is your foremost identity? Some of you in this room have had your lives stripped away from you. You've had a career stripped away from you. You've had a death in a family or something, and your whole identity has changed. Maybe you went through a divorce, and and this which you felt was you is no longer you. And so the, the waves of the winds are blowing you back and forth. What happens in the moment of crisis when things are stripped from you or when your your peripheral identities change? Do you does your world get really rocked because you don't know who you are anymore? Or if you really have an identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ, uniquely disguised as a business entrepreneur, whatever it may be, that you um realize that if you're no longer a business entrepreneur and and you become a salesperson or you know you become a a social worker or a teacher that even though all these things that you do shifts your primary identity is the same i'm a disciple of jesus christ and if you've lived any distance in life you realize how quick life starts to clip by and really what we do isn't our foremost identity Where we come from is not our foremost identity. The groups we hang with aren't our foremost identity. Our identity is forged by who God sees us to be. And God sent his son Jesus into this world to call you and I to go on a journey with him as his disciple in this day and in eternity to come. That's your identity. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, uniquely disguised as a nurse. Last week, we picked teams, just like Jesus did, except he only had one team, and there wasn't the competition of, are you not good enough to be on his team? We said, everybody's good enough to be on his team. He picked the people just off the the boats and behind uh, 
tax tables, people that were looked on as the scum of the world. Sometimes he had some elite people he picked too. You know, you know, Paul was pretty high up in the ranks, and Luke was a doctor and those kinds of things. So he picked them from all ranks. And Jesus said, you know, come follow me, right? And we talked about strapping on the backpack and taking a journey. And, yeah, I'm going to put it on again today just so I can look silly, right? And so... The called and committed pathway of discipleship that we're looking at is the desire for you to head out. And you're going to make a choice to no longer just be a church chair sitter or church pew sitter or to identify yourself as just a good moral person. You're going to begin identifying yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, there's a unique calling in your life that you need to get a hold of as far as this core, this inner center identity, this is who I am. And we looked last week that the first thing you need to understand is that you are called by Jesus. It's not a pastor that stands up in front and challenges you to commit your life to Jesus Christ. It wasn't the parent that was in your uh, room when you were a young child that wanted to pray with you if you wanted to receive Jesus into your heart as your forever friend. It was Jesus Christ himself who came, died, rose from the grave, ascended into the heavens, sent his very Holy Spirit that we've talked about to live in this world and to woo people to Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus is the one who speaks to you, and he says what? Come, follow me. Last week I had a statement. I rephrased it for this week. The Christian life is not based on a decision you made, but an invitation Jesus gave. Any of you ever doubt your salvation if you're a follower of Jesus? To be honest, that was one of my big struggles when I was growing up. This statement would have helped me a lot because I thought my decision it was the foundation for my security of knowing that I was a believer in God, that I would, if I died, I'd go to heaven. And so I doubted the assurance of my salvation a lot. And there's different scriptures you can go to, and that's not for today. But I encourage you, you should not doubt your salvation. And foremostly, one of the reasons is because it's not about a decision you made, but an invitation Jesus gave. And Jesus is not a promise breaker. He is faithful and true. Scripture says that in spite of our faithlessness, he remains faithful still. So, How many of you have had, like, a really bad summer of following God? I'm not going to ask you to raise hands. Maybe you fell off the bandwagon multiple times. Maybe you're just fortunate to be back here in church today. Young people, how many times you head back to school and you get back to school, and, oh, my gosh, you sort of get with a certain kind of crowd here and there, and that whole euphoric camp feeling and wanting to be a follower of Jesus starts to dissipate, and then you look at yourself and go, well, it's me. I, just, I shouldn't even show up to youth group because, look at me, my life's not put together. Maybe I'm not even saved. Those kinds of doubts come with us, but you need to understand this. He remains faithful in spite of our faithlessness, so it's not about your decision Foremostly, it was about his calling. And John fifteen sixteen says this. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So backpacking, our journey, being a disciple, called and committed, is based on a calling that's given by Jesus himself. And he picks you. If you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, I want you to know that you're in. 
you're, you're not in as a follower yet, a disciple of Jesus, but you are in his scope. You are in his eyesight. He is tracking you down and he wants you to be in a relationship with him. And maybe one of the reasons that you're here this morning is because God's tugging on your heart. Maybe you don't even know what it is. Maybe there's just some spiritual interest that you know you should have. And God says to you, I have a purpose and a plan for your life. And it begins with a relationship with Jesus and strapping on the backpack and heading off on a journey of being a disciple of Jesus. And we talked last week that um, there were different instances in Scripture where Jesus would call his disciples. We looked at John 1, and uh, Jesus called uh, uh, Andrew and Peter there. He also called uh, Philip, and he called Nathaniel. And remember what he said? He said specifically to them, come and see. John the Baptist has been talking about the Messiah coming. He says, look there, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who was before him. And they're like, really, really? Is that him? And Jesus, he just looks at him and says, hey, come, come and see. And so they went over to his house. Now, that is a casual stepping in to check Jesus out. That may be where you're at. Maybe you're at a come and see level of discovering who Jesus Christ is. You hang with him. You come to his house. You seek out some scripture, learn about him. That was also recorded uh, Uh, Another further step in Matthew and in Mark, where Jesus not only then came to uh, Peter and John and James and said, come and see. He called them to follow him and to become fishers of men. And then later in Luke 5, 1 through 11, he appears to them. They're fishing again. They had been following him, but sort of on a part time kind of basis, he called them the full time vocational ministry. And he said, from now on, you will be fishers of men. Trust me in this. And so they stepped out on this journey. You have 12 disciples in particular that Jesus said, strap on the backpack and come follow me. But there was a whole host of other people in that culture at the time that was just predominantly men. But he would call women too. There was a a, a large gathering of people that would follow after him. Now, one of the interesting things is if you follow this through all the Gospels, He has tremendous kinds of beautiful encounters and experiences with his disciples and with the other larger crowd of people that were following him. And they came to know him on a very personal basis. And they would um, not only know him on a personal basis, but they would come to discover more and more of who he is. You see, Jesus, you are called by Jesus because he has chosen you. And he has provided a way to redeem you or change you from the inside out. All of your sin can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. No matter how bad you are this morning, even if you came out of prison last week. Jesus forgives. He redeems. He changes. And so they began to discover the beauty of this God who was not condemning them, but who was loving them. And he was calling them to himself. I pick you. I choose you to be my disciple, and I'm going to redeem and change you. But not only were they called by Jesus, this was unique in that day, as we mentioned, rabbis would call people to themselves, and would call people to not themselves, but to their teaching. Jesus, he called people to himself. If you were going to be a disciple, you were going to be called to a personal relationship with Jesus, and your identity, like we just talked about, would then become associated with who he thought you were. 
Now, the world may think differently of you. They may look askew at you for being a follower of Jesus, and some in that day did, and some today do too, right? But your identity is found in Jesus. He's called you to himself. He has chosen you. He has redeemed you, and he has given you a new identity as a disciple of his, redeemed. To be a co-heir with him and a child of God. So many other identifying factors of your new identity, right? But he has also called you to himself to have intimacy with him. Intimacy. Scary word for some of us. He wants you to know him. Not only come to his house, but to be with him. And throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus in all these interactions. And, and sometimes one of the most intimate kinds of settings is what? Is a meal. And he would share meals with them. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here at the end of our worship time today. And and that was a meal that he instituted as a beautiful communion experience to be with him. Do you remember what happened after the resurrection? What did the disciple, I mean, after the uh, death and the resurrection of Jesus, what did the disciples do? Did they immediately go, hey, we're going to start a church and put a big billboard up. We're going to start a bunch of programs. Hey, we're in the we're in the know now. They went back to fishing. You see, Jesus appeared to them a few times over the period of 40 days. But as he appeared to them, they were still trying to put this all together. They were excited that he was indeed alive. And he was going to impart to them the power of his spirit and send them out on mission. And he spoke to them about this kind of thing. But they really and they sort of went back to fishing that come and see, follow me from now on. He found them fishing out on the Sea of Galilee in one of his appearances in John 21. And they're fishing and they're not having a lot of luck. In fact, they fished all night. They were just hanging out together in their vocation. John 20, verse 10 says this. After they recognized there was someone on the seashore bidding them to come in, he told them to cast their nets on another side, just like he had done early in their life when they came to him. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught because their nets became full again. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus repeated a miracle then that he had done when he first called them, your eyes would be enlightened too. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153, even with those with so many, the net was not torn. What Jesus did here was he said, cast your uh, nets on the other side. The fish became full. Peter, Peter jumps out of the boat. This is not the point where Peter walks on the water. That's another story. But you often wonder, why didn't Peter walk on the water when he jumped out of the boat this time? But he takes his tunic off. He swims to shore. He gets to shore because John had told him in the boat, he says, I think it's, I think it's the Lord. I think it's the Lord. And so he jumps out because Peter, and remember, Peter denied Jesus because, you know, three times he denied him before he went to the cross. So there's this strange relationship between Jesus and Peter, at least Peter with Jesus. But he sees that it's the Lord. He gets out of the boat. He swims his way there. They're hauling all the fish. And so this scene takes place. I can't believe they actually put the number in Scripture. There was 153 fish. Wait a second. We've got to record this here. One, two three, four, but there were 153 fish that they caught, it said. And even with so many, the net wasn't torn. And then verse 12, here it is. Jesus said to them, you know, Peter's all wet. He's up there probably put his, put his arms around him. And the rest of the people finally got the boat up and they'd been counting the fish. Jesus said to them, 
Come have breakfast. He didn't take the fish they caught. He maybe caught his own. Maybe they're already, he'd fixed the fish. He had some loaves. And he said, come and have breakfast. Sit down. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. One of my trips to Gal- Galilee in Israel when I was younger was in this very vicinity where they believe this happened. Big black lava rocks going out into the Sea of Galilee. And I remember going out, making my way and sitting on those rocks, looking at some of the fishermen still to this day that fish with nets. And I thought, wow, how intimate was that? How cool was that? Come and have breakfast right here. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, is it about rule keeping? Is it about going to church? Is it about putting on a good face with other people? Or is it just about coming and being in communion with Jesus? Why do we make it so complicated and make it so religious? It's about the relationship. You are called by Jesus. You are called to Jesus. And what a beautiful experience that Jesus would, after his resurrection. I mean, he's, he's just a few short days from ascending to the heavens. Sending his spirit again, of course. But he just said, come, come and eat. You ever have a breakfast with Jesus? You ever have a lunch or a dinner? You know, say, I'm just going to go to a restaurant. I'm going to sit down and open up the Gospels and read the red letters. Those are the words of Jesus. And say, Jesus, speak to me like you spoke to them. Maybe it's on a walk. Maybe it's imagining. Sometimes I've walked in woods and I imagine Jesus is a distance away and he's walking towards me. He says, hey, fancy meeting you here, Carrie. Come with me. I got a path we're going to go on. Me, yeah. All strapped up. Let's go. Driving in a car. It's a long drive. You hit traffic. Oh, man, I can't believe this. It's going to add two hours to my drive. Hey, Jesus, you come and sit in my car and just talk to me. Give me some of your thoughts. Jesus, let me speak out loud to you right now as you're sitting in this car. This is where my heart's at. You see, it's a dynamic of a relationship, an intimate relationship. We are called by Jesus. We are called to Jesus. Never stray too far from that. No matter how up and down your week has been, he will always be there. What happened in this scene after this? What did he do with with Peter? He pulled Peter aside. He said, Peter, let's go for a little walk down the shoreline. Peter denied him three times. And what did Jesus do in this encounter? He said, hey, Peter, do you love me? He didn't say, hey, Peter, when are you going to get your act together? He didn't say, Peter, what in the world was that back there the week of the Passion Week? You denied me, man. He just looked at Peter and said, do you love me? And Peter was like, yeah, I love you, Jesus. And he asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Well, Lord, you know, yeah, I love you. And a third time he asked Peter, 
do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I love you. And Jesus said, what? Feed my sheep. Let's get back at what I called you to do. Wherever you are this morning, even if you've never come to place your faith in Jesus to become a disciple of his, Jesus looks at you, he knows you by name, and he says, I love you, come and see. I love you, come, follow me. I love you, come. From now on, you'll be fishers of men. This is an intimate relationship. Chosen and redeemed, you are called by Jesus. Your identity and your intimacy, you are called to Jesus. What I'd like to do is I'd like to invite up a couple friends. They're actually staff. I'd like to invite Joe up. Joe leads us in our worship. He also is our student ministries leader. And I'd also like to invite up Angie Fan. And Angie is, uh, helps. Yeah. And there's two mics here, the recorded mic, and you give the other to her. And Angie um, uh, is volunteer staff, and she helps do administrative support. She is a godsend for me. And uh, she is also helping head up women's ministry some. And I was talking with Joe in our weekly meeting the other day about this series and those kinds of things, and uh, then broached the subject with Angie as well. Um, it's hard to put skin on this picture without just interacting with people. And so I want to just spend some family time interacting. Um, how did this concept of disciple-making, being a disciple of Jesus, happen in your life? Maybe it related some to what we talked about. You sensed that I was called by Jesus. I'm called to Jesus. And I know, I know each of you have your own testimonies about when you made a profession of faith. But each of you have devoted your service to the Lord. Angie was a missionary for a couple, uh, three years, and she's, that's why she's so engaged. got a seminary degree, right? And so she spent time in education, that kind of thing. Um, how each of you, I mean, what does it mean for you to be a disciple and not just, you know, the average church-going Christian? Take it and run with it. Either one of you. Um, again, my name is Joe. Uh, I think for me, the biggest thing about a disciple maker is also a reminder of who I was before Jesus, you know. We all remember when we came to Jesus, and then we can remember our life after Jesus, but it's like, that's the transformational power, I think, of the gospel, is that before, like, right right from that moment we meet Jesus, it's almost like we forget we were sinners, and then we stop thinking about other people, you know, and I think a big part for me of disciple making is I'm constantly reminded when I'm frustrated with people, when I look at it, it's easy for us to say like, oh man, just people, I could start to see the similarities and what they do and how I used to do that, or even how I still do that, and I go, somebody decided for me I needed to, that I needed to be called out and have that invitation, and they wanted to be a disciple maker, and I'm here now. Mm-hmm. The ones that I neglect those could be the people that step into ministry, that go and reach hundreds of hundreds more people. I mean, I think about it. My youth pastor called me out, and then I, he had no idea. I talked to him on the phone even recently. He had not a clue in the world that I would one day not only be in ministry but have his job. 
and go on and do that. And I think about that, and when I do youth ministry a lot is sometimes kids can be frustrating, but I think I remember where I was before I was accepting that invitation mm-hmm. of Jesus, and that was a huge part. What keeps me going is when I see people, i got to remember I was a sinner, and I need Jesus still as much as they mm-hmm. need Jesus. So. None of our kids frustrate you or anything. Right? Not at all. Angie, what about you? Maybe in particular your calling of why did you choose to be a missionary for that season, those kinds of things, the called by Jesus, called to Jesus. Um, Well, I think going back to your initial question, um, I really feel like God smacked me down in the middle of a ministry at at college. Mm -hmm. And um, the campus minister really pushed me to Jesus. And Mm -hmm. his goal for us involved in his ministry was that when we graduated, not only would we have a degree that we'd go out into the real world and be adults, um, but that we could also be adults in our churches, that Mm -hmm. we were prepared for ministering service when we left his ministry. And he taught me how to follow Jesus. Uh, I saw in him a real relationship with Jesus, and that inspired me. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, when I graduated from college, I was one of those kids that parents fear. I went home without a job. (laughs) And um, God used about 18 months at home to really show me the degree that I had was not what he wanted for my life and that Mm. I needed to pursue him, whatever that looked like, and it's changed through the the years. Um, Mm. So I went to seminary, and at the end of my seminary degree time, um, I went to Istanbul and had major culture shock. Um, It was so different than anything I'd ever um, seen or been near, and that made me hold on so much tighter to Jesus. Um, And I came home, and this was the summer of 2001. Um, I came home, and my roommate looked at me and said, I think Jesus is trying to tell you something. I I don't think you're on the right path. Like, I was planning to do a Ph.D., and teach um and kelly said i think there's something else for Mm. you and as i um started to wrestle with that um i realized that the impact i'd had on my life when i was in istanbul um, was worth pursuing and the people that i met that i fell in love with from the muslim culture um, were worth um, my time and my heart and Mm. so i sent off for an application to do missions in early september And then we all know what happened September 11th of 2001, and I wanted to go into that world. And I thought, there's no way Um, I'm going to do that. I'm a female. I'm about 30 years old. I know I was in my late 20s. I don't want to pursue that at this point. I'm scared. Mm. So I took that application, and I put it in my nightstand, and it stayed there till November. And God continued to wrestle with me. And um, finally, early November... um, I was at a um, a college ministry event, and the pastor preached on the passage of deny your family, deny, you know, all this stuff, Mm. and take up your cross and follow me. And very clearly, I heard Jesus say, all the list of excuses that you've come up with, and I had a long list, um, I want you to put it at the cross, and you need to go, and I'll take care of the rest. Mm. And he did. Um, the hardest thing was telling my dad, I want to go to the Muslim world <laughs> right now. Um, but they were so supportive. And that's where God says, you know, I'll take care of the rest. And, yes, mm-hmm. it, that verse became true to me, deny your family or turn your back on your family. But I really didn't have to. 
I just wasn't in their physical presence for two years, but they were still family. They still supported me and came and saw me, and so that's just a little bit of my journey. It's interesting. Both of you mentioned uh, people. Joe, you had a youth pastor. Angie, you had a, a pastor, a college-age pastor when you were college ministering, and um, then your roommate. People that were influential, influential in your life to say, hey, there's something more. There's something more than just fitting in with, you know, the common, ordinary, being a Christian. And it doesn't have to do with necessarily being vocational ministry. God's not going to ship you to Istanbul this morning, so don't worry about that kind of deal. But it's the thing of you were open, each of you, to say, God, you're going to do something with my life. My life is not my own. I've been called by you. I've been called to you. I've been called to obey that we're going to look back in a second here. And it's just... That um, voice of Jesus came, in one sense, through godly people that were around you, that believed in you and encouraged you, right? I, you know, how powerful is that to realize that you may have that place in the life of someone else to exhort them, to encourage them? Honestly, that's just me trying to steward my responsibility this morning is to challenge us. Dig out your ears. There's something more. There's something more. It doesn't mean a vocational change. It could mean a vocational change, but that's not your identity. Your identity is you're a disciple of Jesus, uniquely disguised in whatever you do. As you guys are on this journey of being a, not only a disciple, also a disciple maker, how, um, how is the, the reality of being a disciple of Jesus, how does that play out pragmatically in your life on a daily basis? Wh- what keeps you fresh? And saying, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus or learning and growing with Jesus, uh, acknowledging that you're with him. Are there things that you do on a pragmatic basis related to being a disciple? Uh, yeah, a, lot, a couple different things. Um, one is, I think, fellowship for myself. Uh, I, I have some close, I have brothers, you know, I have Ozzy that plays in the band and Justin is a brother of mine as well that I'm, you know, take the time to walk through this with and help discern. And people I trust that don't just have an agenda that they think I should do or what I need to do for them. Um, and another one that, you know, I recently, it's funny because I forgot it. I guess you could say not forgot it, but I stopped doing it. And I started doing it again is really the biggest thing I hear God in about is journaling. Mm-hmm. And so, and sometimes I know it's, it's way different than most people's journaling. I think some people do when they do devotionals and they journal, they'll write, um, you know, like they'll write out stuff and they'll, They'll study, they'll listen. And for me, uh, to make God real, you know, to make Jesus a real person, when I journal, I actually write it like I'm writing a letter. And recently, I had not journaled for a while, and I'd come to this really, you know, I'd been, had a rough season of life recently and in just a, an emotional state and a mental state. And I remembered, a, I was reminded by what my brothers ought to journal. And uh, God was so much realer in that moment, and all I wrote was, Hello. Just like a reminder. <laughs> and I sat there and, I, and I, I cried. And I'm like, I don't know what else to write because it's like he's right here. And, you know, and then I, I went to the next page the next day and uh, continued to write. And hellos felt like as I wrote, he answered. I wrote, he answered. And it's, it looks, looks like the writings of a crazy person when you think about it. I hope nobody ever <laughs> finds. I never leave my journal somewhere like at Starbucks and they go like, this person's insane. <laughs> They're writing questions and then like answering the questions, but there's blank spaces and then them. But that is what helps me um, 
to make Jesus real. Because I think that's yeah. the biggest part of a disciple maker. Because if Jesus isn't real, if Jesus is a destination, which I think a lot of cultural Christianity does, they say Jesus is a destination. You must do X, Y, and Z. Do this. Go to church. You know, tithe. Do communion. You know, um, come to a small group. And then you reach Jesus. You achieve Jesus. Mm. Like it's a game. And it's not a game. Mm. You know, as, as Paul speaks about it, it's, the good, it's, it's, it's running the good race, fighting the good fight. But it's not the destination. It's the relationship with Jesus is at the end of that, you know. And so i got to think, well, he's real. So even if I do these things and I don't have the heart of, well, Jesus is real, then what's the point of even doing mm. the things I do? And so that's a big thing is just reminding myself in those ways he's real, even if it makes me seem a little crazy, you know. That's good. I like that. One of the things I started this year that is new to my um, spiritual adventure is I, I had gotten stale in just reading scripture. Um, and so I found a lady online, actually a friend of mine, um, posted on Facebook, hey, I'm doing this, anybody want to join me? Um, and we're writing scripture. And so every day there's a passage of, of scripture um, that I'm following somebody else's plan, but you can do your own. Um, that we write out, and that forces me to slow down. Because oftentimes when I'm opening my Bible, it's I got 10 to 12 verses that I need to read, and then I can move on with my day. Instead of doing that, it takes longer Mm -hmm. to sit down and actually write it and think about it and meditate on it, and usually I can glean something from it that way. Um, So it's a, a little bit longer in time than my quiet times used to be, but it's helped me to kind of meditate and slow down with it. Mm. Well, the examples you mentioned are being intentional to spend time with Jesus, whether it's hanging with some of your bros and interacting about God stuff, right? Or uh, saying hello on a piece of paper and just listening to God interact, your journaling, or taking scripture, writing it out, hearing from him. You cannot be a disciple without putting effort and time into cultivating this relationship. So many times I think we think, oh, well, Jesus, you know, he's not around here. He's way out there. Yeah, his spirit's here or whatever. But we don't do things that we would commonly do. If I was to get to know you, I'd want to go have breakfast with you, right? I could have lunch with you. We could interact. What's your background? Let me hear uh, your thoughts on things, right? We would go do fun things together, whatever. We'd hang together. Why don't we do those kinds of simple things? Because his physical body isn't here, his spirit's here, but his physical body's not here. We don't dial in to doing some of the just the pragmatic things of just getting to know Jesus like we would get to know someone else. And what you're saying is you're cultivating that kind of a relationship. So if I was to um, come to you in those years and say, okay, here, here's the backpack. I want you to strap this on. I'm not Jesus, but pretend I'm Jesus. He's picking his 12. Um, I want you to take the backpack. Come on a journey with me to be my disciple. Come and see. Come follow me. From now on, whatever places that's at, um, what was one of your main hesitations? Your main hesitations about putting on the backpack and following Jesus as a disciple? Just one. Yeah, <laughs> I think the the overarching thing that still even sometimes lingers in the back of my head is loneliness. Um, I knew already if like if I imagine it, and it always gets emotional. Like if Jesus knocked on my door, we talked about this with the youth um, in Mark, where where Jesus calls out Andrew and Peter, and he just shouts to them, "Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men." 
we asked the kids if they would do that, and I think about that, and if Jesus asked me that, the biggest thing was I would probably respond with, I can't. I don't even fit in with the people that I live with, my family. You're asking me to be weirder than they already think I am? And it was not even the weirder. Mm-hmm. Then when I really was honest, it was, you're asking me to risk them loving me less than they already do. Mm-hmm. You're asking me to have give up the comfort of people who I'm not sure if they love me, but they're around, so I could just pretend that you're asking me to wean out the ones who don't really love me. Mm-hmm. And it's scary because I remember when I was in high school and I was going to church, I had a lot of friends that go to church. And when I first started going to church and taking it seriously, I had two. Mm. And one was my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And even now, I don't, ha- I, I know I, I don't have that many. And I think about it again, you mm. know, Jesus had 12. Who makes you think I get deserve more than 12, you know, kind yeah. of a thing? But I think that's the most overarching mm. struggle was the fear of being alone. The loneliness, isolation of yeah. being called out to be a follower of Jesus. I would hear this, you know, yeah. reading the scriptures, you hear what what happens to the people that, that, that take it all in like a Paul. And you go, yeah. yeah, I don't even, he doesn't even talk about his little family problems. He's in like jail getting beaten. I'm like, I, yeah. I'm just trying to fit in with mom and dad and brother and sister. I'm not down for the rest of that. Yeah. That's good. Because I don't know what happens in the end. You identify that there was a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. Oh, yeah. And you had to deal with that face on and still continue to in many yep. ways, right? Absolutely. How about you, Angie? Control. That's my big issue. Hmm. I have written five-year plans through the most of my life, and none of them have ever come true. <laughs> <laughs> I've never and even I done a five-meal plan. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know. What? Damn. Um, but I mean, and that's—I think that's the journey. Hmm. If and I think if I knew five years from now what that looked like, I might say no, Jesus, I don't want to do that. Hmm. And it's specifically when I think about—you know—as a teenager, the last thing on my mind was I want to go do missions. And you know, hmm. ten years after that, I was on the mission field, and that wasn't in my radar at all. So. I think that's just, for me, what's been the biggest. Those are two great ones, the loneliness factor, the control factor. Thanks. I want us to talk a little bit more about that. I never knew they would say those things or how this thing would, this was sort of impromptu here today. But that lines me up with how I want to exhort us as we start to prepare our hearts to go around the communion table. Would you give a round of applause to these guys? So there is this uh, next reality that comes pretty immediately on the heels of being called by Jesus and called to Jesus. And that reality is that you are called to obey. And John chapter 6 is a startling passage. They were clamoring. They were following Jesus. And Jesus had performed miracles. He had fed them fish. They were getting hungry. And they were wanting him to do it again because they just wanted their bellies full. And so Jesus sort of got tired of them just clanging around and being part of the crowd without really knowing the understanding of the cost that he was calling them to, to be a disciple of his. And so he began talking about real costly discipleship, (laughs) that if they were going to follow him, they needed to be aware of this. 
John 6:53. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Friends, that's a bizarre statement. It's not a bizarre statement to us, but it was 2,000 years ago. But they began to understand what the underbelly of all that meant. And that is that they had to be willing to die to follow him. They might have thought, oh, he's cannibalistic, eat of flesh and drink of blood. But the understanding that began to come through and with his other teachings was this reality that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, there's a death to self. You're called to obey even to that length. Anyone eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because the living Father who sent me in the same way anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. So it wasn't only this identification of eat my flesh and drink my blood, but he was saying through this means of you identifying and following hard after me as an obedient disciple, you will have life called to obey. John 6, verse 16. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? (laughs) Wouldn't you think? Whoa. We were just wanting a meal, Jesus. We're showing up at church to get the goodies. What are you trying to do to us? Pulling this. This is a fast one. Saddest verse in the Bible to me. John six sixty six. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. They said, thanks, but no thanks. Maybe they dealt with the issues that that loneliness, I don't want to be ostracized maybe more than I'm feeling now, or I don't want to give up self-control. What do you mean to follow you? I have to do this. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, are you also going to leave? Can you picture it? They scatter. This massive crowd scatters because he's not going to do another miracle. And then he turns around to his twelve. He says, what about you guys? What you going to do? Huh? You going to leave too? You bailing? You cutting out? You're out of here? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Good answer, Peter. Good answer. We believe and know you're the Holy One of God. God, you are called to obey, and at the heart of obedience is understanding truth, responding to the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. They were responding not just to a set of doctrinal decrees, but to the one who embodied truth through all the universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was truth, and acknowledging him, the Holy One of God, and they worshipped him because they stayed and they continued following. That didn't scatter. You been there? Tough call of discipleship. What are you going to do about this area of your life? You're going to turn this over to me? You're going to let me take control of that? He's out not to kill your joy. He's out to give you life and to give it abundantly. That's why we say at the awakening, to become fully alive in Christ and to his mission. There's life in him, but you don't get the life in him unless you come to a death of yourself. And he was calling them to that. Truth 
and worship. The Christian life is not based on a decision you made, but an invitation Jesus gave. Come and see. He said to them, maybe that's a place that you are. Then come follow me. Then from now on. And then John 6. And I've seen this happen so many sad times in my life. Persons confronted with the tough call of Jesus Christ and they say, thanks, but no thanks. Jesus, maybe he's saying to you, are you going to leave? Because for you to go from here to here, spiritually, it has to go through the way of the cross. Called by Jesus, called to Jesus, called to obey. I'm going to ask Joe and the team to come. We're going to sing a song in preparation for communion. But as they come, I want to remind you that Jesus is calling all of his disciples to the cross. He said this in Matthew 6, 24, 26, the same thing as it was in John chapter 6. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. Friends, to say take up your cross, we think of cross as a symbol of hope today. But in that day, it'd be like wearing a symbol of an electric chair around your neck. They knew what Roman crucifixion was. So to take up your cross means that you were willing to die. Some of you might know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He was a pastor. He was a prophet. He was an author. He was also a spy. He hated what the Nazis were doing to the Jews. pastor, he was able to escape and come to the United States to teach in World War II. He was here in the U.S. for 26 days, and he felt God calling him to go back. And he says, i got to go back and help my people. He went back. He continued to pastor and write and teach, but he also became involved in a plot to help assassinate Hitler. was put to death. One of the famous quotes of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. The greater context of that quote is embedded in this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. 
but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. As we sing this song, I want you to quietly consider in your heart if God's calling you to come and die in a new way to something so that you may follow him. Some turn and say, we're out of here. Many turned and followed him no more. And Jesus just simply says, what about you? Friends, this is a sacred moment. In these moments, I'm going to encourage you to come. You can take of the elements, break the bread, dip it in the juice as part of the sign of the blood of the new covenant. Eat of the flesh, drink the blood. May it be a symbolic thing in your life that you're willing to follow Jesus. Yes, you're a redeemed, and if you're redeemed and you're a Christ follower here this morning, you're welcome to the table. I tell you, this is what Jesus does. He starts with the come and see, but where he's taken you is to the come and die. Every church ministry should be about the same. We want you to come and see and check out God, but we would be amiss as a church if we didn't also call you out to come and die because that's what Jesus did. So partake of the elements. We're going to sing this song. There's going to be another song after this, so just sit and worship in this song if you want. Deal business with God. If you want to get up and go to the tables, you can. There's going to be plenty of time to do that. But it's more important that you listen to Jesus. And whether in worship or in prayer, you respond. The call is here. to the cross away. 
going to continue to sing a song. Continue to meet with the Lord at the table. Before we sing this hymn about the blood of Christ, I want to pray for you this morning if you're at that place where you're saying, lead me to the cross. I need to lay some things down. Will you pray? Lord Jesus, in these sacred moments, as your Spirit speaks, may you draw us to the cross to lead us past past that place of death to ourself in whatever dimension it is and lead us to embrace your death and your resurrection your life so Lord here this morning if there's anyone who desperately just needs to be able to lay things down I pray God that you would lead them to do so may they find themselves not scared but seeing the beauty of your love as you restored Peter when you said do you love me Lord that's the prominent disposition we need to see as you lead us to the cross Jesus, you lay down your life for us. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you to do, you said. You showed us the example. You laid down your life. You died so that we might live. Lord, may we follow in your steps. If you did that for us, there should not be anything less that we would do for you as your followers. And so, Lord, lead us to the cross. It's through your blood that we are changed and redeemed and it's through your blood that work of the cross by which we are transformed into being disciples of full abandonment to you. You can continue to take communion as we sing this song. If the prayer of your heart is to be that fully abandoned person. Maybe you just need to mark the back of your connection card as a simple response to say, I'm committing my life. I want to follow Christ today. And take that card and place it in the offering basket. And as that simple step of surrender, of placing a card in the basket, we can join with you and help follow up with you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to pull out that rooted insert sheet and take a step of 10 weeks with a journey with others to say, i got to come and see more. i got to understand what it means to follow me or I need to understand what it means to come and to die. You see, each of us have different places we're being spoken to this morning. Some, it's will you come and see, will you respond to that. Others, will you follow me as a, a fisher of people. For others, it's will you follow me from now on because there's some hesitation to fully be a follower. Maybe there's a place of crisis that God's saying you've not surrendered this and it's a come and die moment. Wherever you're at on this discipleship journey, being called by Jesus, called to Jesus, and called to obey, you need to finish the work here this morning. Maybe it's a prayer. Maybe it's a communion. Maybe it's a response card. Maybe it's rooted. Let's sing.